evidence and answers. Is there such a thing as truth? The majority of the culture says no. How can we engage a person who does not even believe truth exists? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, we begin with message three, taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii each year. Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Greg Kokel presents the fallacies of relativism, one of the most dominant and destructive ideas of the culture today, here in part one. When you think about it, there are a lot of ways to prove that Christianity is false. I bet you didn't expect me to say that, but there are. Our story starts in the beginning, God. If there's no God, no story, right? We're followers of Jesus, but if there was no Jesus, then we're out of luck. Or maybe Jesus existed, but he wasn't the kind of person that the story describes, the Bible describes, well, then we're out of luck again, okay? What if the soul doesn't exist? If there's no soul, there's nothing that survives the death of the body, so there's no heaven or hell that's irrelevant, right? There's a lot of ways that you can show in principle, there's lots of ways to demonstrate that Christianity is false. Now, this is not a bad thing, it is a good thing, because it shows that our view is in principle falsifiable. And if our view is in principle falsifiable, that means you can give evidence against it, it means you can give evidence for it. Paul said, if we are people who believe in a resurrection that never happened, then we are of all people to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us, okay? And then Pat went through just a masterful job of giving the evidence in favor of the resurrection, so you see how that works. What I want to talk about this evening is another strategy that people use to try to show that Christianity is false. And if it succeeds, it is very effective in destroying Christianity, all right? But to introduce you to the strategy, I want to tell you something that happened to me in a chiropractor's office uh, actually many years ago. I've had back problems for a long time, and I've got to remember to stand up straight because my tendency is to hunch over. It makes me feel better. But way back when, I was getting care for this, still working on it, but this gal was getting me ready for the chiropractor to do their work, and, and they should call it a chiropractor, you know, because... And so I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? She said, no, go ahead. And I like to ask people questions to kind of get their point of view about things and maybe initiate a conversation about something really meaningful. And I said, I wonder, do you think when it comes to morality, do you think that morality is absolute or objective, or do you think it's just relative in some sense? And she said, well, what do you mean by morality? I figure, well, this is not a good start. Okay, hmm, you know, right and wrong and ethics, and, and she's having a hard time getting rolling on this, so I said, I'll, I, I give her a clear case example. I said, okay, like this, for example, murder, taking an innocent human life without proper justification. Is that, is that wrong? Now, this was the easy one, right? I thought this would get things rolling. Is murder wrong? And she pauses. She says, well, I said, well, well, what? She said, I'm, th I'm thinking. I'm not making this up. I'm thinking, 
And I'm thinking, what's to think about? This is the easy one. Apparently, this was not a clear enough, clear case example. So I said, okay, is it okay to torture babies for fun? She says, well, I wouldn't want anybody to do that to my baby. Now, I want you to think about the response. Did she answer my question? No, she didn't, because I asked a question about conduct. Is the action wrong? And she responded about personal preference. I wouldn't like that to happen to my child. And I said, you know, there are a lot of things I wouldn't like to happen to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. What I want to know from you is, do you think that, that it could possibly be morally justified in any culture, at any time, in any place of the world, to torture a baby just for the pleasure it brought you? That's my question. Long pause. Finally, she said, I think people should be allowed to decide for themselves. Now, I make some things up, but I'm not making this up, all right? This actually happened. In fact, this conversation I've had more than once. I had the same conversation on the radio in Los Angeles. What's going on here? By the way, I think if I had been, if this woman had been awakened in the middle of the night by a baby screaming next door because the parents were torturing the baby for the pleasure it brought them, this woman would, her, her moral common sense would have risen to the occasion and she would have called 911. But it also shows that in the context of our culture now, when you ask a person about a moral issue, even something as obvious like that, this woman could not bring herself to condemn baby torturing as an objective moral harm. So what's going on here? This is the power of an idea. And this idea has a name. And the name of this idea that was informing her comments to me is moral relativism. Moral relativism. Now, maybe you've not heard the term before, but I guarantee you that you are familiar with the concept because it is thick throughout our culture, okay? So let me try to define terms here a little bit. I want you to think of the difference between ice cream and insulin, all right? Are you laughing at the ice cream part or the insulin part? I don't know what's, what's the jolly word here tonight, all right? <laughs> I like when people laugh when I'm not making a joke. It's like a freebie, you know? Has that happened to you, Pastor? I, I like speaking to Asian groups, too, because I tell them, you know, I said, I love you guys because you have a great sense of humor, which means you laugh at my jokes, even if they're not funny. It's really great, you know? See, like right now, I didn't say anything funny. You're still laughing, right? I want you to think about the difference between ice cream and insulin, okay? So when you choose a dessert, you choose what you like. Okay, there's no right or wrong choices. It's like you have one flavor, somebody else might another flavor, no big deal. Okay, we don't say, hey, you don't like what I like, you're wrong. You like, uh, like chocolate ice cream? Nothing. What's wrong with you? But when it comes to choosing a medicine, okay, it doesn't matter what you like. You got to choose the medicine that is the right medicine for whatever it is you're facing, whether you like it or not, okay? So if you keep those two concepts in mind, moral relativism is the idea that when it comes to questions of right and wrong, morally speaking, ethics, virtues, vices, that kind of thing, when it comes to those kind of questions, morality is more of an ice cream kind of thing than an insulin kind of thing. That is, when it comes to what's right and wrong, people kind of get to choose for themselves, just like the lady said there at the chiropractor's office. It's kind of up to them, kind of like uh, choosing desserts. And this is why you'll hear people to say when it comes to morality, and you weigh in maybe on a moral issue, if you're weighing in in a way that you're calling some kind of behavior wrong, people are going to say things like, who are you to push your morality on me? Notice how they put that. 
who are you to push your morality onto me? Notice implicit in that statement is the idea that morality, that's individual and it's private and it's personal. You have your truth. You heard that? I have my truth, people will say, and they have their truth, okay? This is the le- it's not accurate way of talking about truth because the fact is if we're not actually right about what we think about is true, then it's no truth at all. <laughs> Maybe my delusion or my mistake, but it's not my truth, okay? But in any event, this is the way people talk, and they talk this way because of their conviction that morality is an individual matter, okay? That's moral relativism. Nobody's right or wrong. Everybody's right or wrong for themselves. When it comes to other people, we don't judge them. We tolerate them, all right? We don't push our morality on other people. Now, you're going to discover something shortly really important about this. You're supposed to tolerate other folk, you know, and some of you might already be getting the suspicion, but wait a minute, if there's relativism, how does tolerance fit into that? Well, it seems like it does, at least at first blush. We're neutral towards other people, okay? So that's moral relativism. Everybody's got their own morality. We let them have their own views in it. We tolerate them, and we are neutral with regards to them. We don't say we're right and they're wrong, okay? Now, that's contrasted with its opposite moral objectivism. Okay, this is the insulin kind of thing. This is treating issues of right and wrong morality as if it's an insulin kind of thing. You don't invent morality, you discover morality. It's like gravity, right? And even if you don't believe in it, it still applies. If you don't believe in gravity, you're not just going to float away, right? It still applies to you even if you don't agree, because gravity is part of the objective world. It isn't part of the subjective relativistic world. All right. And in this case, if morals are objective, if they're real, then it doesn't matter if we don't believe in them, they still apply to us. Okay. On this view, and I'm just defining terms right now, on this view, there is a a set of rules that apply to everybody. Okay. They're absolute, maybe, is some way Christians will put that. Of course, as you know, this is the view of the Bible on this. But we have differences of opinion in our culture. Okay. So What I've done so far is I've just identified the difference between these two viewpoints. Now, why is this important for us? How does this relate to proving Christianity false? Listen, we're Christians, so we're followers of Jesus, and Jesus is our what? Starts with an S. Savior. Okay, what does he save us from? Also starts with an S. He saves us from sin. What sin? Isn't sin a violation of a real moral standard? So what if it turns out there are no real moral standards? There are just individual opinions. Well, then there are no what? No sins. They're just things that some people like and other people don't, maybe. And that's all you can say about it. Well, if there's no sins, I mean, if as a matter of fact, in our real world, there is no sin, guess what? Nobody's a sinner. And if nobody's a sinner, they don't need a, starts with an S, Savior. And if they don't need a Savior, they don't need Jesus at least not insulin Jesus. Maybe you've noticed this in a culture that is increasingly committed to the idea that morals are just a matter of individual opinion. What happens to Jesus is he ceases to be insulin and he becomes ice cream. What Jesus becomes is ice cream. 
Try him. See if you like him. Maybe he'll be fun for you. He's kind of cool for me. I like him. Maybe you like him too. If you don't like him, maybe you find something else you like. You see how that works. So Jesus becomes relativized as well. He's no longer insulin. He's ice cream. So a lot is at stake in this issue. There's another thing that's at stake too. Aristotle said that all morality stands on the foundation. I'm sorry, all law stands on the necessary foundation of morality. Now, people say, well, you can't legislate morality. Listen, morality is the only thing you can legislate. That is, if you do not have a moral justification for your use of power, it is just a raw use of power. You get rid of morality in a culture, you relativize morality in a culture, all you got left is what? Power. That's it. People using the power they have to get what they want. And so we shouldn't be surprised in a culture that gets increasingly relativistic, the only thing left to appeal to is not virtue, not goodness, not what's right or wrong, but power. Persuasion out of a barrel of a gun is the way Mao Zedong put it. So you can see what's at stake here. What I'd like to do in this session is I want to do three things. I want to first expose the myth of moral neutrality. Now, relativism trades in the idea that we're neutral towards others, and and therefore tolerant. I think moral neutrality is a complete myth. And therefore, the tolerance that trades on neutrality, it is also a myth. That's the first thing I'd like to show you. Okay. The second thing I want to do is I want to give an argument against relativism. I think relativism is false. I think there are objective moral principles that we can know, and I, I think I can give a pretty good argument to show that. All right? That's the second thing. The third thing I want to do is I want to show how this all ties into Jesus, okay? It's really important to tie in. So first thing, the myth of moral neutrality. I want to read something to you written by Faye Waddleton. Now, Faye Waddleton is the former president of Planned Parenthood. You might imagine that I probably, on pretty important things, disagree with her, okay? I'm not going to read this to ridicule her. I don't believe in that kind of thing. If you want to deal with an opposing point of view, I suggest you find a really good characterization of that point of view and then deal with that. And this is what this is. She's written on morality, this short piece here that I'll read to you, and I think it is really good writing. In fact, it is so good that as I read this to you, you might be thinking, boy, I think I'm supposed to disagree with her, but I don't know how I can disagree without sounding foolish. It's that good. But there's a flaw. And maybe you'll catch it as I read. So let me read what she says about morality and moral neutrality and tolerance. Quote, like most parents, I think that a, moral, a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts I can give my child. But teaching morality does not mean imposing my moral views, values on others. It means sharing wisdom and giving reasons for believing as I do and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction but tempered by tolerance, there you go, the essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect I show her as a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about childbearing. Of course, she's talking about abortion on demand there. 
75 years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. As she wrote, the men and women of America are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives, not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. And then she closes, I'm proud to continue that struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter, or anyone else, that's not morality. That's tyranny. It's unfair, and it's un-American. Close quote. Wow, that's good. That's powerful. That's good writing. That's impressive. I mean, it sounds so sensible. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so tolerant. But there's a fundamental flaw. Before I get to it, though, let me ask you, what is her view of morality as expressed there? Do you think she's expressing more of an insulin view of morality or maybe an ice cream kind of view of morality? This is ice cream. In fact, it's right there in her, her language. She says we should trust others to think and judge for themselves, that people should be allowed to mold their lives as their conscience and their judgment may dictate. So she's relativistic. She's promoting a moral neutrality and non-interference, okay? They got their views. You got your views. You don't interfere. You don't believe in abortion? Fine, don't have one. Somebody else does believe in abortion? Leave them alone. Okay, that's the idea. Okay, good. What's the problem then? Faye Waddleton is not neutral. Faye Waddleton is not neutral. In other words, does she have the same neutral, non-interfering respect for views that differ from hers on this? Well, let's see what she says. She says she wants to continue the struggle to, quote, defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. But then to those people whose beliefs on this are different from hers, what does she say? Those people are unfair, un-American, and tyrannous. Do you notice that those are all moral judgments? For example, do you think that Faye Waddleton shows the same kind of neutral respect for those who want to put their bodies in front of an abortion clinic and keep people from having an abortion? No, she thinks that's wrong. Okay? Now, she may have her reasons for doing that. I'm not arguing the issue proper here. I just want you to see something. She's not neutral. In fact, she will even force her views on you. How do you know that? Because she said it right there in her piece. Where was, it? Where was that? She said, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. What legacy is she talking about? She's talking about her own point of view. So what does she do to secure that? She's a lobbyist. <laughs> She goes to Washington. She tries to prevail upon lawmakers to pass laws that reflect her moral point of view to force you to live according to her view, even if you disagree with it. It's almost as if she said, I've devoted my career to ensuring that my point of view is enforced. And to put a sharper point on it, soon after this, when Congress passed a law making it a federal offense to block an abortion clinic, Pamela Moraldo, who followed Faye Waddleton as a President of Planned Parenthood said this. I, I heard this on the radio. After the law was passed, she said, quote, this law goes to show that no one can force their viewpoint on someone else. Close quote. You're laughing because it's an obvious contradiction, but she wasn't even thinking about it. All laws force a viewpoint. That's the point of laws. Now, look at Am I complaining that she's using the law to force her viewpoint? Not at all. This is the way civilized societies work. In a liberal democracy, everybody gets a vote, everybody gets a voice, you know, that kind of thing. That's fine with me. And if she can prevail through the system to accomplish her ends, that's the way it works, okay? That's not my point. My point is what? It's not what? Neutral. 
it is not neutral. She preaches neutrality in her piece, and you might have even been taken in by it because it's so nicely written, but it is not neutral at all. This kind of neutrality is a myth. And if neutrality is a myth and tolerance is based on that kind of neutrality, then tolerance, the way it's being practiced in our culture now, is also a myth. Everything's gone topsy-turvy. Let me give you another illustration of how this works out. And I'm just still playing the notion that, uh, uh, that there's no neutrality in these kinds of discussions, even for those people who talk neutrality, who talk tolerance. About eight years ago, I got flown out to Toronto to do a TV show called Test of Faith. And Test of Faith is when they fly out some religious weirdo, they put him in a seat, and then they have a, three other people come out opposing that person. They beat him up for an hour on national TV. Now, where do you think Mr. Kolka was sitting in that particular discussion? I was a weirdo in the, you know. Now, what was my weird religious idea? My weird religious idea was that I did not believe in pluralism, religious pluralism. That pluralism is relativism applied to religion. That every religion is equally true and right, and no religion was any better than anybody else's. Now, this is a prevailing view of our culture, but you're going to see that it is intellectually vacuous. I was talking to a man on an airplane once, and he said, well, you're the kind of guy that probably thinks that 90% of the people in the world are wrong about their religion. And then the word bigot kind of entered into the conversation, you know. And I said, well, that is my view, but it's not bigotry, it's simple math. And this will become clear to you in just a moment. Now, when I was getting ready for, to go on the air, there's a gentleman that was part of the crew. His name is Pierre. Pierre was the guy who phoned me in Los Angeles to see if I was weird enough to be on the show. You know, they always make these calls, you gotta have interviews, right? And so after we talked for a while, oh, yeah, okay, you're weird enough, we're flying you out. But I got to meet Pierre, and Pierre's an atheist, but we were getting along fine. And I said, Pierre, I'm going to make a bet with you here about how this is going to come down. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just a gentleman's thing, you know, but, and maybe it won't work that way, but here's my bet. I'm going to give an argument regarding pluralism, why I think pluralism is false, why I think all religions can't be equally true. But the people who I'm talking with, those on the panel, are not going to address my argument. Instead, they're going to attack me personally. And they're going to start calling me names like arrogant, intolerant, narrow-minded, that kind of stuff. I said, maybe it won't happen this time, but we'll just see. So I get up, and I got the first session. Valerie Pringle is the host. There's three empty chairs. She gives me a chance to make my case in the first five-minute segment of the TV show. Why is it you're not a pluralist? Why do you think pluralism is false? And I told her, I'm going to give you an argument that does not trade on my own religious convictions. That is, I could say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and Christianity is true, so you guys are wrong. I could do that. And actually, I, I don't think that's a bad way of arguing, you know? I mean, I put it a little bluntly, but look at it. Jesus has got credibility. If Jesus rose from the dead, as Pat argued here, I mean, he's the guy. He, he knows that he know, he's, got this, he's got it right. People who disagree are wrong. It was right there in, in Pat's PowerPoint. I think that's a good way of, but if I had focused on that, then this would be a debate about Christianity. And I didn't want it to be a debate about Christianity. I want to disabuse people of this foolish idea of religious pluralism, okay? And so I said, I'm going to give an argument that anybody can use, even an atheist, if he's willing to think, well, maybe some religion is true, but they can't all be true. So here's my argument. I said, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Well, he either was the Messiah or not, right? And if he's not the Messiah, the Christians are wrong, right? And the Jews are right on that point. 
But if he is the Messiah, the Jews are wrong and the Christians are right on that. But under no circumstance can they both be right, all right? Uh, if God exists, maybe it's an open question, but uh, he's either a personal God or not. Maybe an impersonal force like Star Wars or Avatar or whatever, you know. So if it turns out that God is a personal God, well, then the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims are right in that point, and the Hindus are wrong in that. If it turns out that God is a force, then the Hindus are right about that, and the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims are wrong. But under no circumstance can they both be right. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.